At bottom, talk about sin, or in the technical jargon of Christian dogmatics, hamartiology, is rooted in the twin convictions that things are not right in the world, and that human beings are deeply implicated in what has gone wrong. Stated in these terms, sin talk may not seem especially controversial. It is hard to imagine many who live in the modern world, marked as it is by the realities of extreme and chronic poverty, environmental degradation, terrorism, torture, and war, who would not be willing to affirm as much. Christians, however, especially those whose roots lie in the Latin or Western tradition of the Church, have tended to go considerably farther. They talk about original sin, claiming on the one hand that human beings' implication of sin is both congenital and irresistible, and on the other, that every human being nevertheless remains accountable for her sin. That set of claims tends to meet considerable resistance, and it is the aim of this book to explore and respond to it. A Doctrine Grown Strange For centuries, few beliefs were more widely and deeply held in Western society than the doctrine of original sin. There was, of course, plenty of disagreement with respect to detail. Catholics and Protestants differed over the character and effects of original sin after baptism, and many groups tracing their lineage back to the radicals of the Reformation era attacked the idea that persons could be damned on the basis of original sin alone, leading them to reject the practice of baptizing infants. But very few would have seen no truth whatever in the opening couplet of the New England Primer, In Adam's Fall, We Sinned All. Even Immanuel Kant, champion of enlightenment and relentless critic of traditional forms of Christian teaching, retained a place in his Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone for a doctrine of radical evil that bears a notable resemblance to original sin. By contrast, one is hard-pressed to find much interest in, let alone enthusiasm for, the doctrine of original sin in present-day Western culture. This changed situation is, of course, bound up with the weakening of the power and influence of the churches in Europe and the Americas over the last two centuries. But even among committed Christians, original sin has lost much of its hold on the imagination. Although in one form or another it remains the official teaching of many denominations, it has ceased practically to be a central tenet of Christian belief, even in those churches that are formally committed to it. And though, especially in the United States, Christians of all persuasions continue to be very active in seeking to influence public policy, their language is shaped by images of personal autonomy and individual freedom, worlds removed from the idea of universal solidarity in sin. Interestingly, however, this shift away from original sin has not in any sense been accompanied by a diminished sense of the power of evil in the world. On the contrary, the language of Christians, from liberation theologians on the left to pre-millennial dispensationalists on the right, is marked by a profound sense of the many ways evil impinges on human existence. And while it may be the case that such movements pay particular attention to evil's suprapersonal, i.e. social or cosmic dimensions, it is far from clear that this has in any way displaced the call for individual transformation. Christians remain committed to the message, Repent and Believe, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, but they are not typically inclined to develop it in terms of a doctrine of original sin. Why not? One obvious answer 
is that the doctrine of original sin is simply not gospel, or good news. It is tempting to dismiss this consideration as nothing more than a sign of the Church's collective failure of nerve, a market-driven desire to avoid some of the more depressing elements of the Christian tradition. But there is more at stake here than mere salesmanship. It is true that the doctrine of original sin is not the gospel, and because it is not, there is something problematic about making it a defining feature of the Church's proclamation. In his prison letters, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was highly critical of those styles of evangelistic preaching that seek first to persuade people how wretched and miserable they are, and only then introduce Jesus Christ as the cure for their condition. He called it religious blackmail, and thought it both ignoble and completely inconsistent with Jesus' own preaching.